Today I want to read verses 1 through 11. So if you would follow along as I read. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now when they had spoken these things, while he, they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are two angels who said to him, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a good, good father. That you supply your kids with what we need to live for you in this dark and broken world in which we live. And Lord, I pray today that we would come to understand just how greatly you have supplied us as we look at your word today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I got a question for you. If someone suddenly gave you two million dollars, would you sit on it or would you put it to use? Anybody gone grocery shopping lately? <laughs> it's crazy, right? You go grocery shopping and you come home with, with two bags. And your spouse says, How much did that cost? And you're like, a hundred dollars. And they're like, man, what'd you buy? Prime rib? I mean, what's the deal, right? It's crazy. The cost of food these days. And if someone gave you two million dollars, I mean, would you still be eating mac and cheese and beans and rice for dinner? Some of you are going, I like mac and cheese, Pastor Rob. It's like, man, two million dollars. It's like it, to, to use however you want. It's like it doesn't, that picture doesn't go together. Or let's say someone gave you an unlimited gas card to use for a year. Free gas. You fill up anytime you want. Are you going to be thinking twice about going somewhere? Taking some road trip? We do that now, right? You know, we're thinking twice, like, I really want to drive that far. That's a lot of gas. And we're calculating everything. And, and some of us, we, 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 like, we fill up our tank and we want to get the most out of it as we possibly can. 
So we come out and we see the gaslight is on and we're like, I can go one more day. (laughs) And sometimes we're literally, we're just running on fumes. But if someone gives you an unlimited gas card, you're not, you're not thinking like that. You're like, road trip, let's go. Pack the bags, babe. You know, let's, let, let's get out of here. You're, you're calling your friends. Meet me at the pump. I'll hook you up too, you know? <laughs> right? That's, that's our focus. Well, spiritually speaking, we have been given the greatest source of power known to man And yet many of us, if we're honest, we're constantly running on fumes, spiritually speaking. We're we're, we're just, you know, every ounce of what's in us is just being drained. Because we don't use the power that's been given to us by God. There were two men who were on a, two, two families on a vacation, and they went to Niagara Falls. You know, the waterfalls were just that power of the waters just gushing over. And one of the men said to the, the other man, this is the greatest source of unused power in America today. And his friend responded, no, the greatest source of unused power in America today is the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Today, I want us to see three qualities that defined the early church. Three qualities that shaped their perspective, that affected the way that they lived, that affected their approach to life, and three qualities that made them so impactful. These are the three qualities. They had a kingdom mindset. They had a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. And they were looking for the return of Jesus. In our study last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3. It was our introduction. We discovered that Luke was the writer of this book. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke, that he wrote to his friend Theophilus, and he says, you know, the Gospel of Luke, the former account, that was where I went through and, and gave you an account of what Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus and his earthly life, his earthly ministry. But the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do, not through his physical body, but through his mystical body, the church, the body of Christ. And so last week we looked at that introduction and we looked at how these, the early church, the apostles were impacted by the resurrection of Jesus. But there was one thing that we didn't mention last week that I want to start our study with today. And it's this, that after the resurrection, we read there in verse three that Jesus spent 40 days meeting with his disciples, eating with them, talking with them, sharing with them, teaching with them. But our text tells us that there was something specific that was on his mind. Look at verse three again. It says, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and here's the key, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is the first quality that we want to mention about the early church is that they had a kingdom mindset. Jesus spent 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension talking to his followers about the kingdom of God. But that wasn't new. You see, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God during his earthly ministry more than anything else. 
It was a focal point of his preaching, and in his discussions on the kingdom of God, he described a kingdom that was radically different from the kingdoms of this world. A kingdom where leaders would lead by love and not force, where leaders would serve willingly rather than demanding to be served. In fact, Jesus would say of himself, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Jesus would say, the rulers of this world, here's how they lead, they lord their authority and power over you. But that's not my kingdom. In my kingdom, he who wants to be first, let him be last, and let him be the servant of all. Jesus described a king and a kingdom where the leader would leverage his power and authority to come under his followers in order to build them up and help them become and be who God wanted them to be. But another thing that was interesting about the kingdom that Jesus was preaching is that there was a now and not yet aspect to it. He said, the kingdom of God is among you now. Right now. Why? Because the king of the kingdom was present. He was in their midst. But he also spoke of a kingdom that was to come. In fact, he would say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus spoke of coming to set up his kingdom here on earth. And it was this now and not yet aspect of his kingdom that the disciples really didn't understand when he was living on planet earth and they aren't understanding it totally in the very beginning here of the book of acts look at verse four it says in being assembled together with them he commanded them not to depart from jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the father which he said you have heard from me for john truly baptized with water but you shall be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now now we're going to come back to this in just a moment but look at verse six therefore when they had come together they asked him saying lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Here's what the disciples thought about the kingdom. All along, this is their thinking, that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Romans and set up his kingdom, a kingdom that would have no end, a kingdom in which Israel was going to be restored to their former glory during the time of, uh, during the reigns of David and, and Solomon. And this is what they're asking. When they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were asking, are, are, are you going to make Israel great again? That was their focus. I mean, you could see them wanting to print hats and t-shirts, right? You know, make Israel great again. That's what they were hoping for. Their focus was national, not eternal. Their focus was temporal. It was in the now. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, you guys, you've got this all wrong. It's not about Israel. You know, there are teachers today, Bible teachers today, that say the church has replaced Israel, that Israel is no longer in God's plans. This passage right here refutes that. It refutes what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say, hey, it's not about Israel. He doesn't say my kingdom is not of this world. It's something else. 
fact, he knew, these guys, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. That the Messiah was going to come and set up his kingdom that would have no end. The Old Testament scripture prophesied about the Messiah who was going to come and rule in Jerusalem. There in Israel. And the scriptures declared how the people of Israel were, had a role to play along with the church in the millennial reign of the Messiah. So this is what they're wondering. They're wondering, is it that time? And Jesus says, it's not that time. Yeah, Israel is still in the plan. That's still going to happen, but it's not that time. But there's something else that needs to happen first. And the thing that they were going to come to understand, they don't understand it right now, but they're going to come to understand, is that the kingdom of Jesus was bigger than that. That the kingdom of Jesus was first concerned with individual hearts and lives. It was first concerned with the overall lostness of humanity. That was the whole focal point of the cross, that Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the sins, pay the price for the sins of humanity. And these men in the early church as a whole would come to live with a kingdom of Jesus first mindset. Remember Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will fall into place. You know the key word is in that phrase, in that verse, it's the word first. If he would have just said, hey, seek the kingdom of God, we're like, okay, yeah, I'll put that on my list and I'll get to it one day. I'll get to it this week if I get a chance. But he says, no, seek first. In other words, what he was saying is make my kingdom your priority and your focus and let it be the very thing that shapes your life. You know, many people today spend their time and effort seeking to build their own kingdoms. Sometimes we call it today our brands, our legacy. But so often we are building things and spending all of our effort on things that have no eternal value. Things that are not going to last beyond this lifetime. Things that are not going to last maybe beyond your lifetime. That they're going to die when you die. Jesus wants us to live, though, with a different mindset. Remember when he taught his disciples to pray? He said, when you pray, say this. Say, our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. In other words, honored above all else is your name. And then he said this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that prayer saying? That prayer is saying is, is, Lord, I have a desire to see the kingdom of heaven invade the kingdom of earth. And you know where that starts? Right here in my heart, in your heart. It starts with us individually. So the early church lived with a kingdom mindset. And Jesus wants us to be kingdom-minded as well. And that means that we seek to live each day with Jesus as our king and where we are concerned about his kingdom above our kingdom, that we realize we're here to promote his kingdom, not our kingdom, and we live with his kingdom in view. So that means we use our money, we use our possessions, we use our time with his kingdom in view. We set our priorities and our politics and the way we vote with his kingdom in view. That's how the early church learned to live. 
And we're going to see this growing kingdom mindset happen as we work our way through the book of Acts. But the thing that Jesus wants them to realize right here in the very start of the book is that there's something that they need in order for them to live for his kingdom, that they were going to need a power that was beyond themselves. And this brings us to the second quality that defined the early church that we want to discuss today is that they lived with a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Note that phrase. You shall receive power for what? To be witnesses. Now notice, he doesn't say to go witnessing. And there's nothing wrong with going witnessing, but oftentimes we think of witnessing as I'm going witnessing. It's like an event. Jesus is saying, no, I want you to live your life as a witness for me. It's about being. It's about being his witnesses. It's about realizing that we are to be living, breathing testimonies of the life of Jesus. Living, breathing testimonies of his love and his grace and his standards and his heart to this world. Jesus used the term that we are lights shining in the darkness. And we've entitled this study in, in the book of Acts, Being the Church in a Broken World, because that's the idea is that he wants us to be. We're being. We're living each day for him. Jesus called us his ambassadors, that we are to represent his kingdom in this kingdom of this world. Now, this is interesting to me, though, that these men, think about this, These 12 disciples, they had lived with Jesus for three years. I mean, they they had studied with the greatest teacher the world has ever seen before. And he taught them, and he poured his life into them, but it wasn't enough. I mean, after the resurrection, Jesus is going to give them the great commission. He's going to say, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. But here he's saying there's something that needs to happen in your life before you go. Something that needs to happen first. And Jesus calls it there in verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 5. He says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this is a new concept that Jesus is sharing with them, and he defines it in verse 8 as the Holy Spirit coming upon them. That's what this baptism means. The Holy Spirit coming upon them. So here's the question. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in order to understand that, I want us to consider this morning the threefold work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. So keep your place here in Acts chapter 1. Turn a few pages over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, we see this is the night before Jesus is going to the cross He's meeting with his disciples in this upper room, and he's sharing some very important things with them that that we see from John 13 all the way through John 17. He's sharing these things with them, and and we see here in chapter 14, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, that's a big ask, right? 
to keep his commandments. Jesus said all the commandments could be summed up in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But even so, that's a big ask. Like we have to ask ourselves, is that really possible? And Jesus, he wants us to know that it is. And here's why. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you. He was with them because he was, the Holy Spirit was in Jesus and he will be in you. He dwells with you and will be in you. And then he says this, I will not leave you orphans. Notice this last phrase, don't miss it. But I will come to you. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he is leaving them, but the good news is is that they're not going to lose Jesus. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm leaving, but I'm also coming to you. How? He was going to come to them in another way. And the way he was going to come to them was through his spirit. In fact, he says, he calls it another helper. And you might want to write this in your Bible. It literally means another of the same kind or another just like me. This is the very spirit of Jesus. This is the, the, the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the, the Godhood, the Godhead, three in one is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving you, but my, I'm going to come to you. How? In the form of my spirit. The spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, here's what you need to understand when we talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not a power. We often think of him in that way. That he's a force, like Star Wars. Ooh. The force be with you, you know. And that's what we think of the Holy Spirit, that he's this cosmic force that comes in and and does this thing. Listen, the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be, the Bible says, grieved. He expresses joy. It's the Spirit of Jesus who gives power to his people. But notice what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit there in verse 17. He says, he's with you but he shall be in you. And here we see two of the threefold aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. He's with you, he's in you, and then what did Jesus say in the book of Acts? And he's going to come upon you. Three different Greek words that all describe three different aspects of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life. So what's, the question is, what then is his function with us? We'll look at John chapter 16. Turn over a couple pages. Verse 7, same conversation, same night. <clears throat> Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Notice him, not force, him, pronoun. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So according to this, the first job of the Holy Spirit with someone is to convict them of their sin. 
to convict them of the, the reality that they are sinners and they need a Savior. To convict them of the judgment that is coming, that Jesus came and died so that they could escape. You could say the job of the Holy Spirit with us is to woo us, to be wooing us and drawing us near Jesus. And if you are a Christian here today, there was a time in your life when the Holy Spirit was doing that. He was wooing you. He was seeking to get your attention, to draw, convict you of your sin and draw you into relationship with God. But Jesus said, he's with you. But then he said, but he shall be in you. Well, when did that happen? What does that look like? Well, he indwells us when we put our faith in Jesus. When we put our faith in the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, died on the cross and paid a price for our sins, rose again to give us life, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to reside inside of us. Paul referred to it this way in Ephesians 3, verse 17, that the Holy Spirit would dwell in your hearts. The word dwell is be at home in your hearts through faith. What does the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, look down at verse 13. Jesus tells us. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus said, this is the the role of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in us is that he's guiding us teaching us, declaring to us the things of God, all for the purpose of glorifying Jesus. And that teaching, guiding, declaring all carry the idea of instruction and application where he's seeking to bring the word of God alive in our hearts. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you remember prior to becoming a Christian Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, when you went you know, to church, maybe when you were a kid or when you tried to pick up a Bible and read it, that it just was so boring and confusing to you. It just didn't make any sense. Well, Paul tells us why that is. He says that this book, the Bible, is a book that is spiritually, it's a spiritual book and it's spiritually discerned. But the Bible says that prior to when we give our life to Jesus Christ, we're spiritually dead. So spiritual things, the things of God, they don't make a whole lot of sense to us. But then when you gave your life to Jesus, what happened? All of a sudden, it was like the light went on in your heart. And suddenly the things of God and the things of God's word start to make sense to where you can't get enough of it. I mean, you're just devouring it and you're reading it because God's word is coming to life in your heart. And so that's the work of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Paul would also say in Galatians chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit is inside of us crying out, Abba, Father. Abba means Daddy. So the idea, the picture there is the Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts every single day. He's seeking to draw us into intimacy with God. You wake up in the morning, the Holy Spirit's going, Daddy. I love you. And that's that work he's seeking to do in your heart. 
You put your faith in Christ and your dead spirit comes to life and the Holy Spirit comes in and connects with your spirit and suddenly you have this desire for the things of God. So he's the helper, Jesus said. He's guiding us. He's teaching us. That's the role of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when did that, when were the disciples indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we see this. Now in John chapter 20, this is after the resurrection. And we read that the disciples are meeting secretly in an upper room out of fear because of the opposition. I mean, Jesus, their leader's just been killed, right? And they're afraid that's going to happen to them. And look at verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad because they saw the Lord. The idea is that they realized that this really was Jesus risen from the dead. And so Jesus said to them, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's at this moment we could say that the disciples were born again. See, no one was born again prior to the cross. Because Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins and then rise again from the dead to give life to all who would believe in him. So no one was born again until Jesus had died on the cross and rose again. And so these guys, at this moment, they're seeing him alive. Their faith is ignited. They realize it's true. And in that moment, Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. It's in that moment that they were born again spiritually, we could say breathed on them. Breath is symbolic of life. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he came to life. Here Jesus is breathing life into them spiritually and the manifestation of that life was the Holy Spirit was now residing in their hearts. So in John chapter 20 is when they're in dealt with the whole, in dwelt with the Holy Spirit. But there's more. There's one more aspect that he talks about. Turn back to the book of Acts. There in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Everybody say, upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now we're going to see that this coming upon them happens on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It happens 50 days later. That's when on the day of Pentecost they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now understand, being baptized with the Holy Spirit is different from being baptized in water. Sometimes I'll ask somebody, have you been baptized with the Spirit? And they'll say, yeah, you baptized me down at the beach two years ago, you know, down in the ocean. No, 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 that's water baptism. And water baptism is something that you do. You do to declare your faith 
in Jesus. Water baptism is that outward expression of the inward work where you're saying, I'm going on record that I'm a follower of Jesus by being baptized in water, and this symbolizes my old man being buried with Jesus, and now I'm ready to walk in that newness of life. That's water baptism. Water baptism is something that you do, but Jesus describes being baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's something he does inside of you. And I think Jesus uses the term baptism because it connects with the idea of immersion, of being immersed. Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit, listen, it's not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have all of the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And I love that the term baptism because the idea of immersion, and I, and I love the picture, if you think about it in this way, you could go down to the ocean today and you could go stand in the ocean, just your feet, and you could say, I was in the ocean today. And that would not be not true. You were in the ocean, your feet were. But the ocean didn't have all of you. You could go up to your knees and say, yeah, I was in the ocean today. And again, that would, that would be true. But the ocean didn't have all of you. You could go up to your waist, but the ocean still doesn't have all of you. You still can move and do whatever you want, but it's not until you get out over your head. Now the ocean has all of you, and its current is moving you, and you can you know, body surf and have a wave propel you faster than you could go in your own strength. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like. It's the Holy Spirit getting all of us. Us being fully immersed in him. Or I love the picture of a sailboat. I like to go sailing. I have a friend that has a sailboat, and every now and then he'll take me out. And it's interesting, you get on the boat, and and we're cruising along because he only has the sail opened a little bit. The wind is just catching a little bit of the sail. But when he really wants to get that boat moving, you know what he does? He turns that sail in such a way that now it's the same amount of wind, but it's just catching more of the sail. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And what we see happens with the apostles is there's a radical difference that takes place when they're baptized with the Spirit. Peter, who denied Jesus three times in front of a bunch of girls, he's like, I don't know, he's afraid. Like, I don't even know him. He's cussing stuff. I don't know Jesus. All the apostles forsook him, they fled, but now all of a sudden we see them united, standing together as one on the day of Pentecost, and Peter gets up before 3,000 people and preaches and says, you guys crucified the Messiah, and you need to repent. And all these people get saved. Why? There was a boldness that came upon them when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. There was gifting that came upon them when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. But here's what I also also want you to catch and see. Because you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I want that boldness. I want that in my life as well. I want gifting from the Lord. But I want you to catch this. This wasn't a one-time thing with them. The disciples are baptized with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We'll see that in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 2. 
But then we see later in the book of Acts, there's several more instances where it says, and they were filled with the Spirit. And the idea there is that they were filled afresh or they were empowered anew for the moment that was at hand. And so these guys live, the apostles live with an awareness of their need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit constantly. In order for them to be who Jesus called them to be, they realized they needed to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And God wants us to live with that same type of dependency as well. So that we can experience that same type of empowering and that same type of gifting. But it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. That's why Paul the Apostle would write this in Ephesians 5, verse 18. He says, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word filled there literally reads this way in the Greek, be continually being filled. In other words, let it be a constant thing. And here's what I want you to catch. Paul says that right before he starts talking about the roles of husbands and wives. Why? Because you need the Holy Spirit power to help you to be who God has called you to be as a husband and wife. He says that right before he starts talking about parenting and children. Why? Because you need God's help to be the parent that he's called you to be. Can I get an amen to that? He says that right before he starts talking about employee and employers. Why? Because you need the Holy Spirit's help in your life, empowering you to be the worker or the boss that he's calling you to be. He says that right before he starts talking about the spiritual battle that we are in, where he's telling us to stand strong. Why? Because he says you can't do that on your own. You need to stand strong in the power of the Lord that comes through the Holy Spirit. So it's coming to that place, church, where we recognize and realize, man, I need this. Lord, I can't do this without you. Notice also that Jesus calls this the promise of the Father in verse 4. He says, wait for the promise of the Father. And that, again, that wasn't new. Back in Luke chapter uh, 24, verse 49, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father, here it is again, upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And I love the fact that he calls it the promise of the Father because our God is a good, good Father who keeps his promises. He's a God who wants to supply his kids with whatever they need to serve him and to live for him and to walk with him. In fact, Jesus would, would give an analogy. He would talk about, you know, you guys as earthly fathers, when you, you supply your kids with what they need, you don't leave them hanging. And in Luke chapter 11, he would say this, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And in that statement, Jesus is telling us how simple this is. It's us coming with a heart of dependency and desperateness and saying, Lord, fill me. Lord, empower me. Lord, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I need everything that you have. And so they were dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wants us to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. But quickly, I want to look at one more thing that defined the early church, and then we're going to be done. There in verses 9 and 10, after Jesus said these things, 
It says he ascended up into heaven. And all the apostles are standing there, like looking up, like they're mesmerized. Like, where did he go? What just happened? It's like he was here, and then he's just like, shh. And, and, and they're mesmerized. And we read in the end of verse 10, it says, And behold, two men, these are two angels, stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into and because of this, and this is another thing we're going to see, the early church believed in the soon return of Jesus. They believed. They, they, they told us he left and he's coming that same way. So they were looking for him. And that means that they were living their lives in a way. This is one of the things I think that created an urgency in their hearts to, to see as many people as possible come to know Jesus because they believed their time was short. And that's how they lived. And I think that's how Jesus wants us to live. That we would live our lives being kingdom-minded, depending upon the Holy Spirit, and looking for his soon return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, that you haven't left us orphans but you've given us your spirit. That your spirit indwells us, but Lord, you tell us here that you also want to empower us, to give us all that we need to live for you, to serve you, to follow you, to stand for you in this dark world. As we just keep our head bowed and eyes closed, and I'm going to ask our pastors and elders and those on our prayer team to go ahead and come up right now. Maybe you're here today. As I was talking, you're like, you know what? I've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And maybe you feel like, you know, I've been trying to live my Christian life in my own strength and I've been failing miserably. That's probably why. Jesus today wants to baptize you with his Holy Spirit. But maybe you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But you feel like you're here today and you just have been running on fumes. Jesus wants to fill you afresh today with his Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I need a boldness to stand for the Lord and, and, and to be, a, be his witness. And I lack that. Jesus wants to empower you today with his Holy Spirit to enable you to do that. Maybe you've been struggling because you've been trying to, to live for him in your own strength and you just have been been defeated. You need to lay that down today and allow the Lord to meet you and empower you with this Holy Spirit. 